0: Bible worm, Bible worm, read the Bible with Bible worm.
1: Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia.
0: And I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, Professor of Religious Studies at Hendricks College and the founding pastor of Mercy Community Church in Little Rock. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish and one Christian.
1: This week we read Genesis chapter 21 verses 1 through 3 and 22 verses 1 through 14, the harrowing account of God's command that Abraham sacrifice his long-awaited and much-beloved son and heir, Isaac. In a text that is so fraught by the very nature of its plot, there is so much left unsaid. We sense deep connection and togetherness between Abraham and Isaac, even as Abraham moves toward fulfilling this terrible thing. We wonder as modern people how this could be and whether, if one is truly certain it is God speaking, there is any other choice. We think we see God changing over the course of this story, leaning farther into the still-new territory of a covenanted relationship with just one guy. And we see the stories of so many people we know who deeply love a person who has been rejected by their religious community or doctrine, who are pressed to choose between them. Oh, this text. I could read it forever and never be done. Thanks for joining. Hey Bobby, how are you?
0: Hey Amy, I'm doing great. How are you this week?
1: I have to say, I was reading this text in preparation for meeting with you, um, and I almost started crying. I've read this story so many times. This is like a this is the section of Torah that's read at Rosh Hashanah. So if you're a Jew who only goes to synagogue on the like highest holidays. This is the story, you
0: know. Yeah. So this is the story of Abraham being commanded to sacrifice Isaac, which is a, that's an intense story.
1: But yeah, just like hearing, having read this story every year at sort of different points in my life, I Mm -hmm. feel like just gives it this, I don't know, depth of emotion that I will, I will try to spare you during this podcast. But this is quite a story.
0: No, it really is a. There is a lot of depth to this story in some really complicated and troubling ways. Yeah. And my suspicion is that many Christian readers have rarely encountered this text except maybe just in their own sort of personal reading. Mm. It's not something that we grapple with. And so I think it's interesting like that it's a text that like, is key to the rhythm in your tradition. And it's like totally to the side, I think in my tradition Mm -hmm. is really interesting. And so the question of like, what does that do if it's the text you read on high holidays every year and Mm -hmm. it's it's having that text as part of the active life of the faith, what does it do something important for the faith? I think that's a really interesting kind of question to explore.
1: Yeah. And I will say just one more thing about that and then, then we'll dive right in. And it is that this story in the Jewish community well I should say Genesis 22. We're going to read a couple of verses from Genesis 21 also. Genesis 22, that story about Isaac is called the Akedah. Mm. And if you and you can Google it if you want to sort of get into the world of Jewish interpretation, but there's if you Google the Akedah project, it will take you to a website that has like tons of videos of people talking about their own experience of this story and how this story lives in their lives mm. and Like all kinds of resources that are scholarly, but also deeply personal, individual sort of responses to this story. That sounds like a a great resource.
0: So, if we were going to spell that in English, we would spell it A K E D A H? Correct.
1: Yep. Okay. Yep. Yep.
0: So, A K E D A project.
1: Yeah. I'll keep you busy for an afternoon. Yeah. Okay, but we're not starting with the A K E D A. We're starting with a couple verses in chapter 21. Right. Is there any background that you think we need to know? I mean, we, last week we read Creation. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we've skipped a minute.
0: Yeah, every year the Narrative Lectionary goes from Creation story to the Abraham story. And that always feels like a bit of a jump. But this year it feels like a, a different kind of a bit of a jump because it skips to the end of the Abraham story. Yeah. Or almost the end. And so I think there's a couple things about Abraham in particular that need to be in our heads as we're reading this text. The main one is that in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is just, I mean, he's just a guy as far as we know. Mm-hmm. Uh, right at the, we meet him right at the end of chapter 11. We don't know anything about him. And God shows up and gives him what seems to be an unconditional promise that he'll receive land, the land of Israel, the land I will show you. Mm-hmm. And descendants who are going to be God's special people and so there's this kind of freely given promise that God makes to Abraham of these things and then that sort of promise occupies the whole of the Abraham story up until yeah. here Yeah. Uh, how's that going to come to fruition and so we go through stages of you know Genesis 15, God reasserts the promise in a in a text that we talked about last year, and yeah. says, "No, this kid's going to be your kid, and it's not going to be somebody in your house that belongs to someone else." Yeah. And then there's the whole Hagar episode, mm-hmm. and then the promise gets reiterated again in 17. Like, no, it's going to be Sarai's kid. Mm-hmm. And so there's been a lot of drama about how is God going to fulfill the promise. Finally, finally, in Genesis 21, where we're starting today, the promise gets fulfilled, and then I'll immediately in the next chapter, as we'll see. The promise is Im- imperiled again.
1: Yes. It's a very, very dramatic story of, of lineage. And, um, well, let's, we'll just jump into the story and then we can sort of talk as, talk as we go. Let's do it. So we are in Genesis 21, and the first little section is just verses 1 through 3, and I'm reading from the NJPS. The Lord took note of Sarah as he had promised, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Sarah conceived and bore a son to Abraham in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken. Abraham gave his newborn son, whom Sarah had borne him the name of Isaac. dun. Dun, dun. dun, dun,
0: dun.
1: <laughs> I mean, in some ways this feels like a really sort of like perfunctory little announcement to include in the narrative lectionary. So what, what I mean, why do you think this why do you think this is included in here? Or what stands out to you about these couple of verses?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the question of why is it included in the narrative lectionary is a pretty good one. And I will say that I poked at the narrative lectionary an awful lot uh, before I tried to come up with a summer lectionary last it's year. Hard. And then it's I was like, really oh my gosh, hard. it's really hard to do yes. things. So my guess about why is it in the narrative lectionary is something, my simple-minded answer is you need to have an Isaac before you can have a story about Abraham sacrificing Isaac. And so they need to have him born before they can go on to the, the next thing. Yeah, But I think within that, there's some really important things going on. And the main one, I think, is right there in that first verse. The Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said Right. So God does what God says. And then it gets reiterated. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised.
1: Mm-hmm. And so this
0: little story, this little vignette right here, is about God's fulfillment of God's promises. Mm-hmm. At various points along the way, Abraham had doubted whether God was going to fulfill the promise back in Genesis 15. Sarah yeah. had doubted it back in Genesis, where was that? 20, 18? 18, 18. 18, yeah. Which I think we talked about. I, it all runs together now. We've talked about that story maybe <laughs> th- maybe two years ago now. So that promise has been in doubt, and but God keeps promises is kind of yeah. what I, is, you know, if I yeah. had to say what's the main point here, that's the main point. What would you say about this little bit of text?
1: Yeah, and I think that's right. I, I will say I was somewhat taken. I heard your translation is different in the first verse. Mm. Mine is the Lord took note of Sarah, and yours was the Lord dealt with Sarah.
0: Yeah, that. The Hebrew is Pekad.
1: It's Pekad. Yeah. Which has this almost, it's the same verb that is used in the beginning of the book of Numbers when they're counting all the members of all the different tribes, but they count them in a way that seems to be honoring them rather than sort of reducing people to their numbers. It's more mm. like, like you have a clipboard and make sure everyone, <laughs> like everyone by their name gets on the bus. And so I love that. I don't know. I love the image of God as as someone who is not above the details, you know, yeah. is like really in that God, God will do the administrative work. Like God will, <laughs> <laughs> you know, make sure that make sure that that promise is kept.
0: I like yeah. That. I, I, I love that. The, yeah, I, I, I love that detail about the counting kids as they get on the bus or whatever. Um, cause this, you can think of God in this as just like real big and like yeah. working in abstracts and that, mm-hmm. Make, puts a fine point on it. Like God was paying attention to Sarah. Mm-hmm.
1: Right, right. And made right. sure
0: that God did what God said God would do. Yeah, I love yeah. that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and the text certainly makes it clear after all of the drama that we've had around lineage so far that this child was in Sarah's womb and was Abraham's child. You know, yeah. it repeats that a couple yeah. times just yeah. so you're really clear about the yeah. biology of this child. So yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about this introduction?
0: I think the only other thing maybe that I would say is that the name Isaac there, Yitzhak, mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. related to the word for laughter yeah, in Hebrew. And I mean, on the one hand, it points back to the story where in Genesis 18, where Sarah finds out she's going to have a baby and she giggles mm-hmm. and, she, and God mm-hmm. says, why, or the angel says, why did you laugh? And she says, I didn't laugh. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in some ways, this is a little bit of a playful name in that sense. Like it's remembering Mm -hmm. that they're like this evoked laughter. But I also think it just sort of like, this is kind of a funny story in its own way that these two quite old people who thought they were past the age where they could have children and God does this crazy thing for them, which is amazing and wonderful and kind of funny. And I think the naming of the child that way captures that really nicely.
1: Yeah, no, I love that. And you're right. She gets in trouble in chapter 18 for laughing, but later you know, a couple of verses later here, she doesn't seem to be in trouble for it. She just says, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears will laugh with me. Like it is one of those things that's so surprising that you yeah. laugh.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's exactly yeah. right. So it's a yeah, it's a happy laughter at this point.
1: Yeah. Yes. Yay, the but child's things, here. Things do not stay happy for long, <laughs> they do Bobby. Not. No. So we skip the rest of chapter 21, which is very interesting in its own right, but we are not going to talk about it. So I'm going to pick up in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. Sometime afterwards, God put Abraham to the test. He said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am. And he said, take your son, your favored one, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the heights that I will point out to you. So early next morning, Abraham saddled his ass and took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. He split the wood for the burnt offering, and he set out for the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his servants, You stay here with the ass. The boy and I will go up there. We will worship, and we will return to you.
0: I know this is not the point, but I just want to say how much I appreciate that the NJPS keeps the word ass in the translation. Like okay. saddled his ass is an amazing translation.
1: I was <laughs> I was <laughs> teaching years ago an Introduction to Judaism at Spelman College, and we did a whole section on this story and various interpretations of it. And I had a student reading aloud from the JPS. And when they got to that word, I will never forget this, she said, So early next morning, Abraham saddled his, and you could like hear the hesitation, <laughs> like, I don't want to read this. And yeah. she said, Behind. <laughs> No, I always picture Abraham with this, like, saddle on his tuchus, like, trying to get up the mountain.
0: That is amazing.
1: It's really good.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Good. <laughs> See,
1: we can laugh. Yitzhak, Yitzhak can make us yeah. laugh, too. Yeah. The
0: NRSV very boringly says, saddled his donkey.
1: Yeah, it is boring. The... Saddled is behind. Behind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, uh-huh. there it okay. is so much in here holy guacamole oh yeah let's let's begin at the beginning so this the first verse sets it up as god put abraham to the test yeah and so some people read this whole story sort of with the question what was the test did abraham pass the test like what was abraham supposed to do in yes. response to this command
0: yeah. I mean, that's a great question. And, you know, I, in some of my writing, I've sort of played around with that question of what was God like? what What is the point at which Abraham passes the test, which raises the question yeah. of, does he actually pass the test at the end? Yeah. To which I'm not sure of the answer, especially at this point in the text.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: What I would say about that is I don't think that verb Nisa is intended to mean he put him through an exercise, the outcome of which was already known, right? I, I don't think God knows what mm-hmm. Abraham is going to do. And we'll talk about that more later. And he's actually checking to see if Abraham is going to fo- follow God's orders. Yeah. And I don't think that God, I don't think there's anything in the way the story is told that tells us at the beginning that God was not actually planning to have Abraham go through with it. Like we don't know what was in the mind of God, but there's nothing in the way this is yeah. set up that's supposed to make us think God already knew that God was going to pull up at the end. Spoiler right. alert. Right. Yeah. Right. right. What would you say about that, about that verb test?
1: I mean, in my mind, it gets so tied into the beginning of this verse that's translated as sometime afterwards, but the Hebrew is after all these things. And so, so there's a again like a whole world of like Jewish interpretation about after what things like what happened between chapter one, ch- what happened between chapter twenty one and chapter twenty two that caused God all of a sudden to say I need to test Abraham in this very dramatic yeah fashion.
0: Now I think that's a great question, and you know the motivation of God here. Is kind of a mystery. I mean, there's there's not very much to work with.
1: Yeah, yeah, and you're right. You're right. That's in why the, there's so many rabbit holes of <laughs> of interpretation. Yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. In the introduction to the te- to the the podcast just a bit ago, I was talking about how in the Genesis twelve story, mm-hmm. God shows up out of nowhere and gives Abraham an unconditioned promise: "I'm going to mm-hmm. do this for you." And that whole. S- arc of the story from chapter 12 to chapter 21 is about God's generosity and graciousness in fulfilling a promise mm-hmm. that God had no reason really to do for Abraham. Yeah. And so in my mind the most obvious way of reading God tested is God is a little bit wondering whether that was a smart <laughs> idea. To say, here, I've tied myself up. Like, I have covenanted with this guy I don't know anything about. And so now I need to know something. And so it's a little bit sort of ex post facto, you know, like, but God's gotten into something. And in my mind, God might be losing God's nerve a little bit. Now, I realize that that's not a, you know, that's a theologically awkward thing to say. But it, to me, it helps make sense of the text is yeah, yeah. now God has covenanted. God needs to know, is Abraham a good covenant partner or not? And so God yeah. tests.
1: I mean, to be fair, Abraham did like leave everything he knew and, you know, go to a land that he didn't know where it was. But you're right. Since that time, it's been give, give, give.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and even in that moment, God does not say, if you go, then I will give.
1: That's true. That's true.
0: Mm-hmm. So it seems like God has given freely out of the yeah. divine prerogative to give. And Abraham has been, Abraham has been obedient. That is, that is true. That is true.
1: The other thing that really stands out to me in this first chunk of text is this tiny exchange. God said to him, Abraham, and he answered, here I am.
0: Yeah. Can you talk about that little Hebrew phrase, Hineni, here I am? I've heard you talk about it in, interesting ways before. What would you say about Abraham's response?
1: Oh, I am the the first paper I wrote in graduate school was on the word hineni and sort of where it shows up in the biblical text yeah. and what it what it means, like what is the resonance of this yeah. word? It's really hard to translate. Yeah. But I understand it as something like this is going to sound a little woo-woo, I think, but sort of radical presence. Or like the person who volunteers for something before they know what it is, yeah. because they're so tied into whoever's asking Yeah, that it's like they have no choice but to be fully at your service. Yeah. So I sense, I sense a deep connection or a deep, I don't know, commitment between them. And I also, I, I think, I think this might be the first time that God calls Abraham by name. In Genesis twelve, God does not like not as a way to like get His attention, like, "Hey, Abraham."
0: I don't. I'm not sure about that last bit. I'd have to go back and check. It uh, seems reasonable to me. What you're saying about uh, I'm totally Hineni, sure I think. To so here I am is how that is often translated, which sounds like like hey, like, like, like I'm over know. here, right? Yeah, which is not at all really what that means. And you know, the, yeah. what you were saying, I would almost you know interpret that as Abraham says like ready or something like yeah. that.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: The text you were reminding me of is one we talked about last year in the Isaiah 6 story where God says, who shall I send? And um, mm-hmm. Isaiah says, here I am, Hineni, send me yeah. before he knows what's coming. And right. so that connection of, it's it's not just a like, I'm here I am in front of you, but here I am ready to do the thing that you're about to ask that I don't know what it is. I, I love that. Yeah,
1: yeah. Okay. Then in verse two, you mentioned already, well, in your translation, my translation was different, but that that Isaac is referred to as Abraham's only son. Yeah. What do you make of this? This is a very long way to say, (laughs) yeah, Isaac. Yeah. What what do you what do you I don't know. How does it resonate with you or what do you make of all of these different Ways to describe the relationship between Isaac and Abraham.
0: Yeah. And it goes like so. If you just woodenly translated the Hebrew, it's take your son,
1: mm-hmm. your only
0: son, whom you love, Isaac. And so it takes four mm-hmm. steps to get us to the name. And each mm-hmm. step is a little more personal. So mm-hmm. your son, like, I mean, there's some. Obviously, some intimacy in that word, but just the Mm -hmm. word son by itself, just a relationship, but then the only one. So the special one, I don't know what to make of that only exactly, given Mm -hmm. Ishmael. Mm -hmm. Um, But here, Isaac is being singled out as Mm -hmm. I I assume it's related to the son of the promise. Whom you love then um, brings us into the actual sort of emotive connection. Like there is feeling tied up here and then finally mm-hmm. his name. Yeah. And so that just that sort of unfolding, it's beautiful narrative. I mean, it's such a simple narrative artistry, but it starts us out and zooms us in. Maybe, you know, one way of thinking about it is maybe Abraham couldn't have handled sacrifice Isaac, you know, right, mm-hmm. right up front, but he sort of needed to dip his toe and then his foot and then his leg into the water. Yeah,
1: yeah, no, that's a, that's a really nice way of, of reading that. I always think of the yachidha, um, like your, your only one, That's translated in that JPS as your favorite one, is sort of like yeah. the way we use the phrase, you're one and only. Like yeah. it's not necessarily, it's it's just like your, your I don't know, your, your special one. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it gets sort of more and more concrete yeah. about, about what is being asked here. Mm-hmm. And then coming out of that, we get... Like we have this like sort of slow, intense experience or you know exchange. Not really an exchange. It's just God talking to Abraham, and then the and then the plot just moves. We don't get any response, any sort of internal world of Abraham in here. Yeah. We get early the next morning. He yeah. did this thing. What do you make of early the next morning?
0: Yeah, I mean there, a lot has been written about this text. Is so. F- fraught with emotion, and yet the text gives us nothing at all about the emotional process of Abraham. And this sort of discrepancy, it's hard to know what to do with it, right? One could read it as Abraham's not having an emotional response. He's just like woodenly obedient. One can read it as, you know, imagine if I thought I was going to lose my only child what would my emotional response be? And then mm-hmm. place that in the mind of Abraham and then think this, through the story that way. And I, you know, I don't know what the right approach is. The fact that he's up early in the morning, you know, on the one hand, it sort of makes me think he's not dragging his toes, right? He's, yeah. he's getting up to head out and get where he's supposed to go. I also, mm-hmm. you know, like it's not in the text, but you you could also imagine like the night before I take any kind of a trip, really, I don't sleep very well. Like I wake up every 90 minutes and I'm like, oh, is it time for me to pack my suitcase? And so I always get up early yeah. before I leave for a trip because I just can't do otherwise. And so yeah. you could imagine this is sort of an anxious night Abraham has. And so he's just figures I'm up. I might as well, might as well get up.
1: Right, right, right. I've got to go. Mm-hmm. The other thing that occurs to me is, you know, we don't hear anything from Sarah in this chapter. And then Sarah dies in the next yeah. part the next section of Torah that we read in the Jewish community. And, and so the rabbis read that as when she found out what Abraham was doing. Yeah. She died. Yeah. So there could be a reading where he leaves early in the morning so that so Sarah does not stop him.
0: Yeah.
1: Oh my God. I would kill him. Can you even <laughs> imagine? take Abraham up there myself.
0: Yeah. No, I think that's such an interesting approach to this text. And, you know, that feminist biblical scholarship. But it's interesting that the rabbis already were doing that, you know, Mm -hmm. 1,500 years ago. Yeah,
1: not quite feminists.
0: Feminist biblical scholarship, trying to think about what is the experience Mm -hmm. of women who are actually not written about in the text. And so trying to go back and think about Sarah's role in this text, even though she's not narrated here.
1: Okay, so now Abraham has saddled his behind and he Mm -hmm. goes up with his servants and with Isaac. I'm curious about how you read verse five when Abraham says to his servants, stay here, the boy and I'll go up and worship and return to you. Yeah. Do you think he believes that?
0: So so the question is, has Abraham already anticipated the ending of the story in which he knows that one way or another, God's going to send Isaac back with him?
1: Yeah. Is this a statement of profound trust in God's promise? Or... Is he lying? Deception. And is he lying? And and there are lots of reasons you would lie about this. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, I think that question is very much alive here. And I think it continues in the next section of the text as well. Yes, yes, yes. And, you know, I don't think the text allows us to settle, which I think is important in its own way. And so maybe the ambiguity in the text could also be read as sort of an ambiguity in Abraham. Like, Mm -hmm. things have worked out so far. He trusts that things are going to work out. He does not know exactly what that means. I don't think Abraham here should probably be read as so confident. Like, I know that Isaac's coming back with me. Maybe he's hoping, you know, Mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. I'm just... I'm just going to say the positive outcome because there's got to be a way this thing's going to work out. Yeah. I think it's also a totally reasonable to read it as he can't just say to his traveling companions, like, Hey, I'm going to go sacrifice my kid and I'll be right back. Right. And so he's got to say something. And so like, I, I think in my mind, Abraham's kind of holding this thing to himself. I don't think anybody besides Abraham knows what God has said to him. And so Abraham's mm-hmm. keeping it in, Keeping it in his own sphere, not letting anybody else in and hoping against hope that something's going to happen. Yeah. How, how would you re- read that or respond to that?
1: I mean, I, I agree with you that there's, there's no way to know. And, in, in, you know, listening to your description of all of the points here where we just don't know with yeah. the te- you know the text doesn't give us more information i think that's part of why there are things like the akeda project yeah. where people can see their own experience in some way not that we're commanded to sacrifice our children heaven forbid but the kind of fraughtness that we can imagine is somehow working itself out in abraham it it's it's really like an open space for people to yeah to see themselves in different ways.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that way of thinking about it. And, you know, in terms of like, what's your attitude toward God here? And like, you could think like Abraham is so trusting that there's never a question. He thinks it's fine all the way to the other extreme, which is, you know, Abraham could be enormously angry and shocked that God would make him do this. And yet, like, what choice does he have? Right. And so he's got to go. He's got to do it. And that, this text leaves space for all of that. I love that.
1: Yeah, it yeah, sure does.
0: Anything else you want to comment on on
1: this section, or shall we see what happens next?
0: The only other thing that sort of stood out to me is, and you don't see it really in the English, but when God asks Abraham to take his son all the way mm-hmm. back in verse 2, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. God says, "Kachna." which the Na particle there is a, I don't mm. never quite know how to translate that, but it's, it's a like particle polite. of politeness. Right, yeah. And like God Buddha. is not really in the business usually of using that Na particle. Yeah. Uh, so take, please take your son. Like It's almost a little <laughs> bit of an entreaty from God. And I don't know yeah. what to make of that other than yeah. God seems to know. <laughs> God's being a little gentle in asking yeah. Abraham to do something that is not at all gentle.
1: I love that. I had never noticed that before, but you're right. That really, that's a fascinating additional layer to the whole tone of this
0: conversation. Well, I said that was the only thing, but there is actually one other thing. (laughs) Yes. What's the other thing? And that is that, so the God's command to go in Hebrew, lech lecha, Mm. is kind of an unusual way of, like, you could just say lech, as you know, instead of lech lecha. And there's an echo there of the promise in Genesis 12. Mm Mm-hmm. And also the sort of stepped nature of God's command that we were talking about and the go to a place that I'm going to show you. I'm not going to tell you That's what right. it is right now. That's All right. of that is reminiscent of Genesis 12. And That's so it right. seems to a lot of us that this text is trying to remind us of the Genesis 12 promise in particular, in yeah. the way that it's, that it's being told. Hi everyone. It's Bobby here from Bibleworm. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. Amy and I started Bible Worm a couple of years ago because we wanted to create a space where we could talk deeply about the Bible in ways that bring together our academic backgrounds in biblical studies and our deep engagement with communities and people of faith. We decided to make this resource free because we want everyone to have access to sound biblical scholarship that connects biblical faith to everyday life. We hope you're finding the podcast fits that need. That said, while the podcast is free, making it is not. Amy and I and the rest of Team Bible Worms spend a lot of time and energy studying, recording, and editing the podcast to make it freely available to the public. If you enjoyed the podcast, and if you find yourself in a position to support our work, we hope that you will consider becoming a Bible Worm supporter for as little as $4 per month. For a bit more, you can also get early access to episodes, weekly liturgies, video Bible studies, join a monthly discussion group, and more. We realize not everyone is in a position to support the podcast, if you appreciate our work and want to support us, we hope you'll check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Biblewormpodcast for more details. Thanks so much for listening, and now back to this week's podcast.
1: Alright. Shall we continue? Let's continue. Picking up in verse 6, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and put it on his son Isaac. He himself took the firestone and the knife, and the two walked off together. Then Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Father, and he answered, Yes, my son. And he said, Here are the firestone and the wood, but where is the sheep for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will see to the sheep for his burnt offering, my son. And the two of them walked on together. Whew. Yeah. Okay, first of all, this translation, Yes, my son. Worst translation ever.
0: Yeah. What is it? Be- what should it be?
1: It's sh- this is Hinani again. Yeah. So, I mean, for me, that's just where I just feel like it. The depth becomes like a bottomless pit in this story. Like just as Abraham cannot do anything but be fully present and responsive and ready to do whatever God
0: asks. Yeah.
1: He responds to his son the same way his son that he is taking up the mountain. Like, oh, oh, I just can't, I can't handle it. Overload.
0: Yeah. So Abraham is fully present to God, fully present to his son. And yet caught up in that full presentness is this command from God to whom he is fully present to sacrifice his son. Yeah. To whom he is also fully present. And so you get this, like, he's fully committed in ways that are fundamentally incompatible. Yes. And it's yes. deeply true.
1: It's a nice turn of phrase, Bobby.
0: <laughs> yeah, I don't know what to do with that. Like I mean other than what you're saying is to put yourself in Abraham's position. Yeah. And just to realize the depth of like every all the things that are happening here.
1: Right, of what it is to be committed so completely to two things that seem utterly incompatible. Yeah and all you know is that's that's what's happening like you yeah. <laughs> you know i don't know i don't know
0: to me the obvious move to make as a modern reader at this moment is to say look i'm all in for god but when god asks me to sacrifice someone yeah. that i love yeah i'm not doing that <laughs> right yeah and so for me the full presence to my kid i think is going to override my full presence to God. And I don't know what to do with that. Well, but let me ask you. I think part of what's challenging for me as a
1: modern person is I don't think I would ever be quite so sure that it was God talking to me.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean,
1: if you really if, I mean, I'm not going to ask you about would you sacrifice your child. But <laughs> like if if you could have an experience where you truly deeply believed that it was the one and only God who was speaking to you do you think you'd have a does it seem like there's any option
0: no I I think that's I think that's the right question and so then suddenly this relationship between God and Abraham which has been so generative and so promissory and Mm -hmm. so oriented toward blessing Mm -hmm. is suddenly this kind of overbearing, inescapable power. Like I, yes. I can do no other, even if I wanted to do other because God is God and I'm, I'm just me. And so suddenly now we're in the land of coercive feelings. Yeah. yeah. Which is so yeah. different from where, from where we've been up until now in the Genesis 12. Like that's not unfamiliar to us from the primeval history. Right. And you know, the, the flood story and so on. But it has not been God's relationship with Abraham.
1: You're right. It's a very different a very different God that comes out here. The first verse in this section, verse 6, has a really resonant image. Abraham takes the wood for the burnt offering and puts it on his son. So yeah. Isaac has to carry his own wood.
0: Yeah. Can
1: you unpack that at all for me? Well...
0: You know, I will say that in the Christian tradition, the focus in this text is almost exclusively on Abraham.
1: Hmm.
0: And Abraham, you know, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews is called out as a model of faith. And so this sort of trusting in God. And so Christians by and large have been disinterested in Isaac other than maybe to say that Isaac is prefiguring Jesus yeah. carrying his own cross, which is a whole, like, that's a super interesting opening yeah. in this text, probably not necessarily where we want to go today. Yeah, yeah. But my understanding is that Jewish tradition pays a lot more attention to Isaac and what's going, like, his role in this story. Is, is
1: that true? I guess I don't know. what I was surprised to hear you say that the Christian tradition pays more attention to Abraham. So maybe that means that comparatively the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. Um, There certainly is attention paid to Isaac. I mean, it's so hard because it's all sort of imaginings because we don't get anything from Isaac. Yeah. You know, Um, but there are there's a lot of thinking about how this would have impacted him and, and the type of character that he is later in the Torah and really the, the ways that this, uh, this event maybe damaged him yeah. as a human, traumatized him yeah in a way that he never really recovered from.
0: Do you read him here as, so it's, it seems reasonable to me that if he were going with his dad to make a sacrifice, somebody's got to carry the wood. Yeah. So Isaac carries his own wood, his own wood, and maybe he wouldn't think anything of it. Now you and I, kind of knowing where we're headed as readers, there is a poignancy to that carrying, like he is carrying yeah. the vehicle by which he is securing his own sacrifice. Yeah. That's powerful. Do you think Isaac is clued in? Like, especially right here when he says, "Yeah, like, uh, where's the lamb?" <laughs> Do you think Isaac is, what do you think Isaac's thinking right here? Is he willingly kind of, he knows what's up and he's going along. He doesn't know what's up. Like, how do you read him?
1: I mean, uh, there is one, um, one of the questions that comes up in the Jewish community around this is how old is Mm -hmm. Isaac? Is Isaac a young boy or is Isaac like a young adult? And there is a stream of interpretation that pictures him as a grown man, yeah. really, who certainly knows what's going on and goes along willingly, you know, again, sort of feeling like there's no, there's not another option here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But from the text itself, I mean, you you pointed out at the end of the last section when Abraham says to the servants, the boy and I will go up and we'll worship and return to you. And we're sort of like, what's underlying that statement? I think you're right. It does carry through here, and we don't know if. This is a, we don't know what's behind this question. Yeah. And if he believes the answer and.
0: Yeah. Yeah. What do you make of the answer? When he says, where's, look, I, we got fire. We got wood. We're missing a lamb. And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering. My son. That is a little, there's some play in the language there as well of what Abraham says. Do you, do you? What do you think Abraham thinks is about to happen? Do you, do you have any idea?
1: Well, I mean, I think, so thematically, one of the verbs that comes up a lot in this story is the idea of seeing. Yeah. And so when it says, um, God will provide for the lamb, I think it's literally, God will see to the lamb. Yeah. Yeah which is tied into the, the name of the mountain where yeah. they are. And, you know, it's, it's tied into this whole, like they're going to look up and see the sheep later. Yep. Yeah. So that's the, I guess that's the detail that I would pull out of that. Yeah. That response.
0: I think it was Rashi maybe who kind of famously noted the ambiguity of the Hebrew of what Abraham says in verse eight. He says, so the, my son there is placed ambiguously in the syntax. Mm. So Abraham could say, hey, my son, God will see for himself a lamb for the sacrifice. But Rashi says, you could also read it as God's going to provide a lamb for the sacrifice. And that lamb is you, my son. Like that lamb is you being, you know, obviously unstated. And so like, what is the role of my son? My son is the lamb, or mm-hmm. hey, son, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a lamb, mm-hmm. and you know I think again we have Hebrew that can't be settled, and it's sort of like that whatever whatever Abraham said to his companions in the previous section, we're going to go sacrifice and come back. Abraham can be read as radically trusting in God's provision here, like don't worry about it, son, it's going to be fine. God, mm-hmm. uh, Abraham can also be read as kind of masking the truth and saying you're get you're about to get sacrificed. But I don't want to tell you that. Like, how could I possibly tell you that? And so I'm going to tell you, but I'm going to say it in a way that you might hopefully not understand what I'm saying.
1: Yeah, right. Right. And for me, I mean, in some ways it ties back to this sort of sense of radical presence or connection that that often accompanies the word Yeah. but that I, I just can't imagine in my mind that Abraham is out and out lying to Isaac.
0: Yeah. I just, I can't. I think that's Fair. And I actually I really love that because you know it it could instead of lying, it could be Abraham is saying as much as he knows. Yeah. God's gonna provide. The command is God is gonna provide you. And so maybe that's what's about to happen, but maybe God has another plan in mind. And so one way or another, God's gonna provide the sacrifice. And I, I don't wanna say anything that's not true. Yeah, And so I can't either say it's all going to be fine and you're going to, you know,
1: yeah,
0: be saved. And I can't say that I'm, I'm going to have to sacrifice you. All I can say is God will provide. And that's the extent of what I know. So it's yeah. not a lie in either direction. It's not saying yeah. everything's going to be fine when he's not sure. And it's mm-hmm. not saying uh, I'm going to do this one thing, but say another. It's I just, yeah. uh, this is all I can say.
1: One last thing I want to point out about this chunk before we move on is twice in this, it's only three verses and twice in here, it says the two of them walked off together. Yeah. Yachtab, which is the same word for the same root that we had for Yehidha. it's like as one, they walked yeah. off, you know, mm-hmm. in, in oneness together, which again, like, I think it's so easy to read this story as like a total divide between Abraham and yeah. Isaac, but I I feel like while there's obviously a power dynamic um, and they're experiencing it differently, there is a way in which they are in this crucible together.
0: I love that because I think I tend to read it the, the way you're suggesting we should not read it, <laughs> which is setting. Abra- God has that. set Abraham against Isaac and yeah. maybe God actually has set Abraham yes. against Isaac, but Abraham has not separated from isaac i think that's so important and i i appreciate your drawing that out over and over now that you're showing it to me it really is in this text uh, in multiple ways that the responsiveness of abraham the togetherness of abraham with isaac and so he's carrying this dual commitment in which he has not made a choice right shall we continue let's continue
1: the dramatic finish okay i'm picking up in verse nine They arrived at the place of which God had told him. Abraham built an altar there. He laid out the wood. He bound his son Isaac. He laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham picked up the knife to slay his son. Then an angel of the Lord called to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he answered, here I am. And he said, do not raise your hand against the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your favored one, from me. When Abraham looked up, his eyes fell upon a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering in place of his son. And Abraham named that sight Adonai Yireh, whence the present saying, On the mount of the Lord there is vision. Whew. Yeah. Well, if Isaac didn't know what was happening at the end of the last <laughs> section,
0: he finds out pretty quick. Yeah, he does.
1: <laughs> he finds out pretty quick in this section.
0: One of the things that is so interesting to me there is, I mean, the narrative pacing of this text has been really fast. Mm-hmm. Like it took us yes. eight verses to get from a command to the top of the mountain, yes. but that verse nine is so slow. Yes. Um, built an altar, laid the wood, bound his son, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Like we're it's like we've slowed down to like every single motion is being narrated. And so the text is really zooming us in there in a pretty profound way.
1: Yes. Yes. The pace is just excruciating. And I, I, on the one hand think of, you know, those traumatic moments in life where it seems like everything slows down, like time moves at a different pace. And I also, you know, I think of it almost as, although this isn't really what's happening, Like Abraham doing everything as slowly as possible. (laughs) Like he left early in the morning, but now like he really is at the moment where he's got to be wondering.
0: Yeah. He's gone. I I love that. He's gone this this. whole way thinking that something miraculous is about to happen. And now we're so close to the moment where it's too late.
1: Yeah. I've seen some really beautiful and highly varied artwork depicting this moment. And one of my favorite things to look at in that kind of artwork yeah. is who is the picture trying to get you to look at? Yeah. Like are you looking at Abraham? Are you looking at Isaac? Are you looking at the ram? And those are really different different stories. Like if they were bound up in a crucible together before this, I feel like at this moment they're <laughs> I don't know, they're having they're having different experiences yeah. now that Isaac is actually bound to the wood.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's right. And if you look at our Artistic portrayals of this as well. The, like, what is Isaac's posture? Yeah. I think it's Rembrandt. I'd, I'd have to go back and check my notes, but he painted early in his life and then late in his life. And in, mm-hmm. early in his mm-hmm. life, it's a very aggressive, like Abraham's like holding Isaac down and like Isaac's yeah. clearly struggling. And Abraham's like, no, I'm going to make you do this. And then the one he paints or draws when he's old. Uh, Abraham is, Isaac's just standing there sort of willingly. And it's very gentle. Like the relationship is still very gentle, even though there's about to be a sacrifice. And so the, like we were saying before, this text is wide open in yeah. terms of what a reader can, ma- ha- the sense that we can make of it.
1: Yeah. And there is a lot of Midrash that about this moment and and sort of what happens to Isaac and what yeah. happens to their relationship. I yeah. mean, after this, after this exchange, they, they never speak to each other again. Yeah, I mean, the text right. doesn't say they never speak to each other again, but it never reports any conversation. Yeah. So even, even though they're the sac-
0: being in the same place again, right?
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Even though the sacrifice is called off. Yeah. They're not okay.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> they're not okay.
0: Which is kind of tragic when, I mean, it's tragic in all the ways. But especially when you read it the way you've been reading it, as they are so like so committed to one another mm-hmm. right up until yeah. now. And so there's been a real rending of this relationship. Yeah.
1: What do you make of this well, I mean, just verse eleven altogether, but there's there's a repetition of Abraham. Now it's not, you know, his name is called twice. Yeah. And then of course he answers again, he me
0: I mean, there's so there's so much going on in there. Because one question for me in verse 10 is, so we're, so we're the narrative pace has slowed. Abraham mm-hmm. has picked up the knife. He's mm-hmm. drawn back his hand. Yes. But, but <laughs> like it's the next thing that matters, right? Yeah. Does the hand come forward or not? Is Abraham yeah. going to do it or not? And so to me, verse 11 is so interesting because the angel interrupts the test in my mind, at the exact moment that the test is about to be either passed or failed. Mm. And there's an urgency to it. Abraham, Abraham, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, like the angels, God, you know, God, is, God and the angel are right. pretty much impossible to separate yeah. in yeah. these texts. God's a little bit back on the divine heels right here. Like, oh my goodness. Like, wait, 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 wait. Like, stop. Right, right. I end this game of chicken. Yeah, yeah. there's an mm-hmm. uh, chicken is exactly right. And Abraham, I don't know. Abraham won the game of chicken. God flinched. (laughs) That's right. I'm not kidding.
1: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's a, I'm sorry I keep bringing up Midrash. I know we try not to do that, but I just can't control myself. I love it. There's a Midrash that between the two callings of Abraham that he calls Abraham, but it's too late. And Abraham kills Isaac. And then they bring Isaac back to life and call him again. Like that Abraham has basically Abraham has left the building at this point. Like he is in autopilot. He thinks he has to do this thing. And so, so it is, it is too late in that midrash. Well, I mean, it's not too late because, you know, God can bring people back to life.
0: To me, those midrashim are so interesting because like one way of reading those midrashim, I think it's James Kugel who talks about midrash's um, surface irregularities in the text. Like mm. they're they're trying to it's like a an oyster making pearls out of irritants. Mm. Um, so they look for things that are irritating about the text, and then they turn them into something. And if you read it that way, one way of getting at that, like why would you write a midrash in which Abraham actually kills Isaac? Yeah. One possibility is because the text is actually ambiguous as to whether Abraham was going to go through with it or not. And yeah. so you write a midrash where Abraham actually does go through with it. And then there's a miracle on the other side. Now you don't have to like question whether Abraham was going to do it. That's
1: right. That. So Abraham has, if that was the test, you know, that he should do it, then Abraham passed that test. Right. According to that midrash.
0: So I think there's an open question here in my mind. And I think in the mind of rabbinic interpreters, maybe as well as, as to whether Abraham actually did in the story as narrated pass the test or whether, as you suggested in the, in the game of chicken, God flinched at the key moment. I don't know if you meant to suggest that, but that's how I take what you suggested.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know if I would have quite said God flinched, but I think that's pretty much what I meant.
0: Which makes verse 12 all the more interesting. Yeah. Because God says, okay, don't do anything because now i know that you fear god so the the first question is did god not already know apparently not <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah i mean this is really the i mean abraham has has acted faithfully but this is this kind of this is the kind of impossible Request Like if, if we really sit with like the, the pain of this text and that dual commitment before. And additionally, I mean, we're thinking about the interpersonal commitment between Abraham and Isaac, but remember the whole reason he wanted this son in the first place was like lineage was, was your legacy, was your connection yeah. to like immortality in some way. And so the idea that after all of this, that, that child would be gone um yeah god god needs abraham to be willing to put that on the line
0: yeah this text runs square into the sometimes doctrine of the omniscience of god right that mm-hmm. god knows everything in a timeless way mm-hmm. if you read it if you read the text that way god already knew at the beginning of the test what abraham was going to do yeah and so the test was actually not really a test because the outcome was already known. Yeah. But the text does not seem to say that. The text seems to suggest there is a movement in God's knowledge between verse 1 and verse 12 in which God now knows something that God did not know at the beginning. Yeah. And so God tested Abraham because he wasn't sh- cause God wasn't sure. And then Abraham did whatever he did, and now God is sure.
1: Yeah.
0: So there's this movement, I think, is important. Mm-hmm. Connected to the flinching thing, uh, the other question is, does God actually know, right? To me, the only way God would know, will will Abraham sacrifice Isaac is if Abraham sacrificed Isaac. Yeah. Abraham didn't. He did everything up until the moment. Right. And then God flinched and said, like, it's good enough or something like that. (laughs) Yeah. And so that, like, the knowledge of God there is so interesting because... It's both God did not know, and also maybe God still doesn't know,
1: yeah, and you know there's again a midrash that like this all comes out of a uh, a debate between God and Satan, right, yeah, you know this Midrash right that Satan's Satan somehow like at the beginning of the story when it when it's like after all these things that or after all these words, it's the same in Hebrew that there was some conversation where some wicked angel is saying to God, like Abraham's not, Abraham is just in it for the son you promised him. Yeah, You know, he's not really faithful to you. He wants this outcome that you've promised. And so God's basically trying to prove it to the wicked angel. Yeah. Which would indicate that God didn't actually need, God didn't need proof, but this yeah. other angel did. Although one could say, like, why is God proving things to wicked angels? Oh
0: God. <laughs> yeah, that actually sounds a lot like the Book of Job, which is kind of fascinating in its own yeah. in its own yeah. way. But yeah. in my mind, there's another surface irregularity which says the Midrash has to solve a problem. Yeah. Which is in the text yes, by that's right. saying there's a wicked angel, but there's not a wicked angel in the text. Right. And so the problem is God is having these opposite impulses. Yep. Kill him, don't kill him. And God yeah. is sort of sorting it out internal to God's self.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is a real, it is a challenge for monotheism. And especially if you have a, a monotheism that doesn't have an active sort of evil angel or Satan in it, that yeah. you get all these, all these seemingly conflicting behaviors and attitudes that you have to attribute to the same God. So I see why the rabbis wanted to hedge a little bit on that. Yeah. We're getting close to the point where we're going to want to shift into bigger reflections on this text. But is there anything else you want to talk about in this little section itself?
0: Well, I mean, I think we should probably mention the ram, although (laughs) that verse 13 and 14 sort of seems like a little a little bit of an afterthought, almost like the drama of the text has just ended. Mm -hmm. But here we have God actually did provide uh, an alternative which is what Abraham said was going to happen back mm-hmm. in verse eight, or maybe, maybe what he said was going to happen. And there's yeah. a ram caught. And so God still requires a sacrifice, but it's a different sacrifice than was originally commanded. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that there's anything very profound to spin out of there, but what do you think?
1: Yeah. I, I get so caught up in the drama before this and I'm like, yeah, yeah, there was <laughs> yeah. a ram. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's a it's a little it's a little weird to me that like God still required a sacrifice. Like was this a test or was God hungry for something and yeah. this was the replacement for it? I don't know. It seems a little bit a little bit random to me unless we really are going back and and saying like we we want the words that Abraham spoke in some kind of faith to be true. Yeah. And the only way for them to be true is for a ram to appear.
0: No, I think that's right. And I also think in, you know, one can also read this in light of the later command that one needs to redeem. Like God has the ownership of the firstborn and one needs to redeem the firstborn. And so this, Mm -hmm. the sacrifice of an animal to redeem the firstborn maybe isn't, is in here as well. Yes, for sure. Some people read this whole text as an etiology of animal sacrifice So the the point of the text then becomes something like you're not supposed to sacrifice people. You're supposed to sacrifice animals. Right.
1: right. For from here on out, we will sacrifice animals instead of people. I don't, I don't love that theory, but I know some people like it.
0: Yeah. I don't love that theory either. And I also think that it it, it very much like, even if that's part of what this text is doing, that's a, such a flat reading of this text, Yeah. which (laughs) as you've been pointing out is like, so rich be like, oh yeah, I don't sacrifice people like,
1: okay. Yeah. I mean, great. Okay, and good. Also, I agree
0: with
1: yeah. yeah. <laughs> I agree with your end point. <laughs> point
0: taken. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do think that the fact that in the end God does provide, which is what Abraham has said this whole time. Yeah. Uh, and that it worked out like it worked out in a way like I don't know if Abraham anticipated exactly what was going to happen or what, but he, he went as far as he could go trusting it was going to turn out okay and it turns out okay. Yeah. I think that's important. So all of God's promises yes seem to come to positive fruition for Abraham, Mm -hmm. even though Mm -hmm. this is a really traumatic story.
1: Yes. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. But certainly they're changed through this
0: experience. Who's the they in that sentence?
1: I guess I was, I mean, I would would say certainly Isaac is, and the relationship between Isaac and Abraham. Can that be a character in the story? Yeah, Sure. sure. And I don't, I mean, I can't imagine Abraham's not, but I guess I can't point to anything in the text that shows the way that that plays
0: out. Yeah. I
1: mean, and and Sarah dies.
0: Yeah. To me, the most interesting character in this text is God. Mm -hmm. And I think God is changed in this text, which is also a heresy. (laughs) (laughs) From philosophical, if you're a philosophical theologian. But if you're a textualist, God is the most active character in this whole text. God sets it in action, God keeps it moving, God calls it off, God provides the alternative. Yeah. And God says, "I now I know. I know something I didn't know before." So even yeah. at that sort of mundane I don't know if that's mundane or not but at that, at that sort of simple level, God has changed in terms of what God knows. Yeah, and so I, I definitely agree with you that um, People are changed in this text. Characters are changed in this text. And I think it's all of them. God, I love
1: that. I love that. And I hadn't really thought about that before. So as we move
0: to a close,
1: is that where you would put sort of the weight of your reading? Or do you land somewhere else?
0: I've struggled in this with this text. As Like I've written about this text, but I have never try to interpret this text for modern life i don't guess because i've mm-hmm. been struggling a little bit with how to do it um i did write a little essay about this text and if you have 95 dollars to buy the book that is published <laughs> by, <laughs> to read the essay <laughs> you too could be one of the like 12 people who's read this essay it's in a little <laughs> book that i published uh, in 2015 called imagination ideology and inspiration um it's a it's a book that's sort of unfolding, the students of Walter Brueggemann are kind of unfolding what they learned from Brueggemann. Mm -hmm. And so I I wrote about this. And so some of the stuff that I've been saying today uh, about maybe God is the one changing this text and, and so on, that is sort of what I try to work out in that essay. Theologically, what I think about this text is exactly where we ended up, that this is a text about God coming. I don't know that God is changing exactly, But God is coming to understand in a different kind of a way what it means to be a God Mm -hmm. who is in a covenanted relationship with particular people rather than being a God who wields sovereignty in solitude. So from all of Genesis 1 to 11, God is God and people keep crossing God. And getting punished mm-hmm. in various mm-hmm. ways, in the Garden mm-hmm. of Eden, in the no- yep. Noah flood story, in the Tower of Babel. Then God shows up in chapter at the end of chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12 and commits the divine self to this person, Abraham. And everything's different now, right? Mm-hmm. God cannot simply—I mean, God could have destroyed—had Abraham destroy Isaac in this text— And then God would have known that Abraham is obedient and also the child of the promise in whom this whole covenant has been grounded is no longer. And so the covenant is null and void. And so the covenant requires that God's sovereignty yield to God's blessing. Now, there are other ways of reading this text for sure. But if you think about what that means in terms of like, what is the relationship of humankind to God? What is the relationship of Israel who are God's descendants? And Mm -hmm. what does it mean for Christians who are, in our interpretation, grafted onto that original covenant? What does it mean for us? And it means that we have a God who is both sovereign and also a God who is deeply gracious and committed to us. Mm -hmm. And, we experience both of these sides of God, I think. And, and if, when you read the Hebrew Bible and you read the New Testament, like God is both of those things in various complicated ways. And I think what this text says is at the end of the day, God's graciousness toward God's covenant partners wins out. And if covenant partners like Abraham and maybe like us are willing We can play a game of chicken with God in which God flinches. Mm. That is, God has to take us seriously. Even though God is still God and we're still us, we are now a covenanted partner that God cannot simply do whatever to. I mean, presumably God could, but Mm
1: -hmm.
0: not not and still be a covenanted God. Yeah. I think that's pretty profound. And this text in which Abraham seems... To, at the beginning of the text, to be in a coercive relationship where he's being forced to do things because he can do no other, by yeah. the end of this text, that relationship has shifted, and yeah. now Abraham has uh, not exactly the upper hand, but but has a hand in the relationship. Yeah. and I think that yeah. has profound implications for the way we live out faith today.:
1: I love that, and I love the way that it fits with this sort of unfolding relationship between abraham and god and and the way that god really sort of grows into what it looks like to be in relationship i love that i think that's beautiful
0: when you read this text thinking about contemporary life in your communities where does your head go
1: my head goes but i almost want to say my heart more than Mm, my head this is such a hearty text yeah it goes to people who are committed, like really fully and completely and wholeheartedly committed to God or their religious tradition or their community. And have a loved one, maybe a child, maybe a partner, like a truly beloved, beloved one. That does not fit into your community. Maybe the person is queer, maybe the person is a different religion, maybe the, like whatever it is that feeling that you cannot be you can't do both mm. you know like there's this pressure from the world like you have to choose one of them mm. you can't have both of them yeah but you do like sometimes you just do have both of yeah. them Yeah. and it's excruciating and no one knows like for me it's like it's so it's so real like the feeling of this text is so real that. And it does nothing to really resolve what you're supposed to do about that yeah. other than keep putting one foot in the other and try to be faithful to all of your commitments and pray that something <laughs> will unfold in a positive way. Yeah. But I just feel like, I don't know, I feel there, this, is, this is the text for those people in my mind. So I've felt that way about this text for years now. Mm-hmm. But the newest thing that I add to it just in this last reading is, is the awareness of Abraham may still feel really close to Isaac and may feel that he's stayed as committed as he could be. But their relationship is deeply damaged, if not destroyed by this. And so in some ways, whatever Abraham felt like he was expressing (laughs) in commitment by taking his sweet time, setting out all the items for the sacrifice or whatever he was doing, Mm. it wasn't it wasn't enough for their relationship. Yeah. And so I don't know. It just it has me thinking it just has me thinking about people who are who are committed to a community or a religious belief and who are also committed to a person who. Something, something about them definitionally does not fit into that community. And what do you do in that space? And I, I don't think this text answers that question, but no. I think it, it holds it up for us.
0: I love that. It's, it's, it's so beautiful wh- where you were head- where I thought you were headed and then you complicated <laughs> it there at the end in a way that is true. And so this sort of sense of, you have to be true to your commitments in ways that you don't know how they're going to work out, but you got to be committed to the people, the things, the beings that you're committed to and trust that somehow, but also I love where you win at the end that, you know, now we can go back in this text and say, could Abraham have done something different? Should Abraham yeah. have done something different? Was there an outcome that wouldn't have fractured the relationship with Isaac? And I mean, I don't know yeah, the yeah. answer. Yeah. But if God yielded at the end, maybe God would have yielded at the beginning. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like maybe Abraham had more agency than he thought he had Mm -hmm. or something like that.
1: Or maybe Abraham did feel like he, he, maybe it was faithful. Like he was really doing his best at every moment. And that's how it turned out.
0: And that's just the best. Yeah. And that was the,
1: the best that it could be. But, um, I don't know. Yeah. I kind of liked that interpretation more before I added that extra layer of complication, but it, but I think that's, I think that's true.
0: Yeah. I I think think that's that's exactly true. true. And I think it, yeah, real life feels more like that.
1: Yeah. Mm, Such a good text.
0: Such a good text.
1: So next time we will be in Genesis 27 where Isaac is the patriarch at that point And he has two sons of his own who are going to battle it out for the birthright and the blessing.
0: Such a good story. Yeah. Good stuff. I feel like the narrative lectionary is hitting some highlights so far this year. Yeah. It's good.
1: Yeah. Yep. Well, um, always a pleasure to talk with you. Yes. Likewise. I will talk likewise. to you again next time.
0: All right. See you next time. All right. Bye. Bye.
1: for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash Bible Podcast for details.
0: Bible Worm is produced by Bobby Williamson and edited by Joel and Laura Becker. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby. We're grateful to our many supporters for helping us to keep the podcast going special thank you to our executive producer, Fox Valley Presbyterian Church in Geneva, Illinois, and to our newest supporter, Andrea Tischer. Join
1: us again next week when we'll be discussing Genesis chapter 27, verses 1 through 4 and 15 through 23, and chapter 28, verses 10 through 17, when the sons of Isaac struggle for their birthright and the blessing. Until then, keep on dating.